0: Making people's lives better.
1: Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer.
2: There are models emerging. Where the boomers are saying, okay, I'm not just going to grudgingly keep writing the checks. I'm actually going to try and help with some skills. But the millennials are saying, I can actually learn something here from, you know, the experiences of the past.
1: That's author David Kravitz. He's just written a book called Beyond Age Rage, How the Boomers and Seniors Are Solving the War of the Generations. He'll share some surprising ideas on today's show. A new documentary about singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn will premiere this Friday on Vision TV. It explores Bruce's spirituality and activism and the relationship to his music. I spoke to Bruce earlier this week to preview the documentary's debut. ¶¶ And the world-famous violinist Yitzhak Perlman was in town this week. He spoke to our classical music expert, John Vandriel, about his impressive career as a violinist, conductor, and now, much later in life, as a teacher. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Here's some good news for men. It seems the gap between male and female life expectancy is closing and could even out by 2030. That's according to Professor Les Mayhew, an advisor to the Office for National Statistics in the United Kingdom. He looked at the data since the 1950s and found that the difference peaked in about 1970 when women were expected to live almost six years longer than men. Since then, the gap has slowly been declining, and Mayhew attributes this to a few factors. One is healthier lifestyle choices. The number of men who smoke is dropping. And many hazardous occupations like coal mining have all but become a thing of the past as safer office jobs become the norm. And here's some bad news for men. A new study finds that as women get older, they may become closer to their daughters than their husbands. Researchers from Oxford University and Northeastern University analyzed 2 billion cell phone calls and a half a billion text messages from a European mobile telephone carrier, studying the most frequently called contacts and labeling them best friend and second best friend. They found that on average, older women had their daughters in the best friend spot, while their husbands fell behind into second place. The study, published in the journal Scientific Reports, also found that husbands continued to retain their wives as their closest confidants. A new car is being designed specifically for Zoomers. British engineers are developing a high-tech vehicle that will come equipped with navigation tools, night vision systems, and intelligent speed adaptations. It can also monitor stress levels, concentration, and driving habits by tracking drivers' eye movements. The developers are hoping that monitoring these factors will help determine exactly what the biggest problems affecting senior drivers are. The car, dubbed Drive Lab, is still in development, but it's been road-tested in Scotland by about 20 seniors, all in their 80s. And finally, a lost concert film of the Fab Four will be shown in movie theatres across America over the next few weeks. The documentary is called... The Beatles, The Lost Concert, and it contains footage from their first ever American concert, which took place at the Washington, D.C. Coliseum on February 11, 1964. The 12-song set, which lasted just over half an hour, includes hits like I Saw Her Standing There, She Loves You, and Twist and Shout." The performance was filmed and shown in movie theatres just a month after the original concert, but was subsequently lost. It was recently Unearthed, Restored, and remastered. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. He's been an icon in the Canadian music industry for four decades. Singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn opens up about his music and the inspiration for it in a new Vision TV documentary, Bruce Coburn Pacing the Cage, that will air next Friday. Before the debut, he opened up to us starting with the role of spirituality in his life and work.
3: My desire for a relationship with the divine is central to my life, and that shows up in the music. That's the, the simple way to say it, I guess. The the in the 70s, when I first started thinking of myself as a Christian there was a lot of specific references made to the Christian faith and to biblical stuff and so on and over time a lot of things have been added onto that so it's not quite as specifically biblical or as traditionally Christian or whatever as I was trying to be at that time.
1: What made you start thinking of yourself as a Christian? Uh, You didn't grow up particularly religious.
3: No I didn't um (laughs) <laughs> my parents made us go to church because it was the 50s and people would call you a communist if you didn't go to church. Somewhere along the way, I think when I was in high school, I discovered that I really cared about the spiritual world. A big boost in this regard was marrying my then wife Kitty who had become a kind of hardcore Baptist by way of adolescent rebellion against her free-thinking parents. <laughs> you know, there were a couple of life crises in there that precipitated this, but um it wasn't like the sudden kind of struck by lightning conversion. And
1: waiting for it. And, waiting for it, and, waiting
3: for a miracle.
1: and now you say your spirituality has evolved.
3: When I moved out of Ottawa at the end of the seventies. I never found a church that really kind of offered the same vibe that that I had gotten used to with the church that I went to in Ottawa. It became apparent around the time I was getting divorced, which was around this time, that all this interior work and kind of focus needed to be balanced by looking at the world. I sort of started thinking one day, somewhere in there, that if I was going to be loving my neighbor, I better find out who it is. And, you know who are these people so uh, so I moved to Toronto, and I got uh, you know kind of embraced the urban life and you know things got a lot more complicated when you start looking at at what motivates people and uh, you know you start meeting people who don't have your faith that are a lot more interesting and and, and trustworthy than some of the people who do by the I guess middle of the nineties i and you know I started doing yoga and studying well let's say not studying so much, but being exposed to. Hindu teachings and then reading Rumi and reading uh, uh, Lao Tzu and uh, the the great sages of various cultures and uh, finding that I was getting as much out of those sources as out of any Bible study that I'd ever done.
1: You also bring a lot of your politics to your music. Are you comfortable, a lot of people consider you a protest musician, are you comfortable with that label?
3: I'm not comfortable with any label. Do I melt off against certain things that I feel threatened by? Yes. And I guess that's a kind of protest. But to me, protest music, the phrase protest music is really, you know, it's a marketing phrase from the 60s. There is political content in a lot of my songs, and that again, it comes down to life. If I find myself having a strong emotional reaction to something, it's very likely that that emotional reaction will, will trigger the songwriting process.
1: I'd like to talk about If I Had a Rocket Launcher in, in the film. You tell the story about when you wrote that you were at a refugee camp, they were being bombed or strafe, and you were really, really angry. And then you went back to your room and, and drank some whiskey and wrote the song. If I had a rocket
2: launcher, I'd make somebody pay.
1: The question that I have is that those lyrics were quite violent. You know, if I had a rocket launcher, some son of a bitch would die. How do you reconcile that with the whole Christian peace and love and forgiveness?
3: Well, I, I, I don't. I wrestled with whether or not to, to ever give that song a public airing. I mean, I wrote it out of a sense of outrage, maybe better a better word than anger, but really... In the end, I decided that I would, because not to do it was a kind of self-censorship, and I wanted people to see how easy it is to get into that state of mind.
1: Now, you're a Zoomer, and you're a new father at the age of, what, 67?
3: Uh, 66, actually. 66?
1: Sorry about that. What's that like?
3: It's great. It's really, it's a bit challenging from an energy point of view, but, uh, uh, but it's lovely, and... I've been given the gift of being able to have another go at it and not make the same mistakes. I expect I'll be making other ones. But uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's actually really nice to be going through those experiences again with the perspective that one gets at a, at a greater age.
1: Where do you see yourself in terms of your career? Is there a kind of different next chapter? Is it going to be sort of more of the same road? Have you reflected on that?
3: Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. I, 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 have, a, I have a hard time even with the word career, but, uh, but I, yeah, I've been doing this for a living for a long time. I don't really see stopping because why would I?
1: Okay. On that note, Bruce Coburn, great talking to you. Thank you so much. Oh,
3: well, thank you. I appreciate your interest.
1: The documentary will debut this Friday, May the 4th at 10 p.m. on Vision TV. And now, from pacing the cage to age rage, that's coming up next. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better.
1: The clash of generations. You've read the headlines, you've heard the inflammatory language, and here on the show, we've debated the idea... That greedy boomers have created a crisis in pensions and jobs, pitting the old against the young. Now, Zoomer Media's David Kravitz has some surprising conclusions and solutions in his new book, Beyond Age Rage. David, It seemed to happen sort of out of the blue. All of a sudden, this idea of a war between the generations of age rage seemed to be everywhere in the popular culture. How did that happen?
2: I think what's happening is that it it took everybody by surprise. The forces that were natural and were going to happen anyway, which is the boomers not retiring on schedule, partly because of attitude, partly because of need. The bad economy – The millennials, the first crop of millennials hitting university and then hitting the job market terribly unprepared because of the education and sort of culture they had grown up with. And so you had this kind of perfect storm of all these forces and everybody just wringing their hands saying, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. The old people aren't leaving. The young people can't get a job. Catastrophe, tragedy, whatever. And instead what's happening is the, the rhetoric is there. But in fact, the solutions are already being quietly put into place.
1: The thinkers that I read that say don't talk about class divide or class warfare, it's generational divide. The irony is that most of people putting <clears throat> forth this idea are themselves boomers, Zoomers, <laughs> and I guess it's a good way to grab headlines.
2: And there's a tremendous guilt. I mean some of the more – most vituperative comments I have quoted in the book, you're right. You're absolutely right. Come from boomers. At the same time, there's a lot of rage, if you will, among the millennials who are saying, hey, we played by all the rules. We did what we were supposed to do. I've got this expensive BA degree in my hands. How come I'm still stuck in my parents' basement?
1: Who are the millennials? The
2: millennials are 1980, early 1980s to the year 2000. So, the people who are just coming in university or coming out of university, a small group of them are still teenagers in school, and they'll have a chance maybe to learn from the horror show that they see among the slightly older millennials. But um, the people who are just coming onto the job market, and they're the ones that are struggling.
1: They say that we, the boomers, benefited from certain economic forces. It wasn't that hard to get a job. It didn't cost that much to go to university. And our our homes, the real estate market, went nuts.
2: All true. All very true. And so the millennials are coming into a much tougher climate. But the double whammy is they're coming into a much tougher climate, uh, coming out of a cream puff education system that left them, like, massively unprepared as a, as a generation.
1: What about boomer zoomer parenting they do far more for their children and step in to situations which would normally teach people to be an adult way more than anything that that we ever did. I mean, you know, we went to university. We had to get ourselves there. You know, you see the boomer parent moving their kids in and and literally sleeping on the floor for a week so the child can get settled in a university. I mean, what is going on
2: All true. And the whole helicopter parent phenomenon is the boomers. They're continuing that now with the adult kids. There's a record percentage of of, uh, adult children living at home after the age of 25 compared to what the boomers themselves did. 13% of boomers lived at home after age 25 versus 43% of millennials. They can't leave at the same age. It's becoming the norm rather than the aberration. So just as the reinventing of aging changes aging... It also starting to change parenting and definitions of adulthood. And going into the future, when people live to over 100, it may not be considered that weird for them not to be fully functioning adults until they're pushing 30. So, what is pushing today? Pushing
1: 30 isn't bad. All right, <laughs> <laughs> 35.
2: But so it's today, this kind of, oh my God, hand wringing. Can you believe what's going on? Little Junior is still dependent. May in the future become that's just the way it is because Little Junior is going to be working until he's 85. Even if you take the life of boomers themselves, so what their grandparents could do at age 13 or 14, what their parents could do at age 13 or 14, what the boomers could do at age 13 or 14, and what their kid it's getting older and older and older until you hit certain milestones. And, and this is just the reason for the rage, I, my theory, is that because it's all hitting all at once, exacerbated by this terrible economy we're all struggling with.
1: What's the answer then?
2: we can start to focus on some of the solutions that are emerging, like the multi-generational family and maybe a return to mentoring and a return to apprenticeship. You get your B.A., you prove that you can learn, you learn how to learn, you become an educated person, and then you get a two-year diploma, an 18-month diploma in a more job-related, not necessarily a trade, but something that does plug into a, a profession. And that's what they're starting to And
1: then it. you get an unpaid internship. And so there's you get, your apprenticeship. If you don't have to
2: pay for it. But really, that's just going back to the 15th century when you had to pay to be somebody's apprentice.
1: The other thing that really bothers me about this whole idea of generational warfare is that you know at the end of the day if too many entitlements are pulled from older people well who's going to have to pick up the slack it's going to be their kids that's
2: right so there's so what we're groping our way toward is this uh, generational cooperation i think there are models emerging Where the boomers are saying, okay, I'm not just going to grudgingly keep writing the checks. I'm actually going to try and help with some skills. Where the millennials are saying, I can actually learn something here from the experiences of the past. Maybe if we join forces, we'll be able to deal with this whole longevity issue because it's an uber issue. It's not a short-term issue. How does a society operate if everybody lives to 100 or if a lot of people live to 100? And we're kind of groping our way toward that now, and I think the rage is because it's all so new and it's made more intense by the bad economy.
1: Okay, David Kravitz, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, tell us, the book is available already.
2: Yes, the book's available online and through bookstores everywhere.
1: That's violin virtuoso Yitzhak Perlman, one of the most famous names in classical music. He's in town this week for a residency with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra and for a concert with his students. While he was here, our own John Bandreel had a chance to sit down with him, and we'll hear that conversation coming up.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome
1: back to the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. World-famous violinist Itzhak Perlman was in town for a residency with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra this week, and later this afternoon he'll be playing with his students at Kerner Hall. He sat down with our own classical music expert, John Vandriel, to talk about his history with the TSO and about the many different directions his career has taken.
4: I'm doing everything. My musical activities are now uh, triple. You know, there's uh, concerts, and there is conducting, and there is teaching. And whenever one doesn't take place, the other one takes place. You know, for example, my, my teaching, whenever I go back from tour, come back to tour to New York, you know, that's all I do is I teach. I don't teach what we call master classes and stuff like that. I do one-on-one, you know, I teach normal. And when did you start conducting and how, how did that come about? It's very interesting. Pipping? It came about from the program music program. It's, it's very funny because what happened was that like 18 years ago, uh, when it started, uh, my wife's vision was to have string players and of course, to have a string orchestra. And she said to me, would you like to coach them? and coaching basically was and at that time I conducting never occurred to me really and and so i started to coach them on what that means you know basically conducting so but at that time i didn't hold a baton because i felt i was not a conductor so i held a pencil because i was a teacher you know so <laughs> but anyway so and then i got good results from what i was doing with the kids and that's that's how uh, people said, yeah, you know you know, you you're pretty good you know why don't you try so i tried with uh my first orchestra really serious orchestra I'd conduct was the israel philharmonic and the reason was that i i went there very very often and uh, so i felt like their family and i feel i was going to fall on my flat on my face i'd rather do it with family than with a strange orchestra and that worked out so one thing led to another so it actually started about 18 years ago does the conducting inform your playing absolutely everything benefits the conducting benefits my playing and my playing benefits my conducting and my teaching, of course, benefits everything. Now, I can't imagine you retiring. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, are there things that you, you haven't done that you really want to do that, that was on a, on a list of things that you want to get to yet? No, you know, I mean, probably, you know, doing more, you know, some certain pieces as a conductor, I would, I would, you know, like to do. I love uh, to, to conduct choral works for example I would hopefully I could do one of these days a Verdi Requiem because it's one of my great great pieces and so on. So uh, you know but, but this will happen I'm young I'm young still. <laughs> Any recordings coming up? i just did a um, recording which I'm extremely excited about of uh, I would call it Jewish music that consists of cantorial music as well as klezmer, as well as Yiddish popular music, with a most wonderful cantor, uh, who is uh, who is one of the main cantors in one of the major synagogues in New York and in Israel as well. Uh, his name is uh, uh, Healthgut, and uh, we just made a recording for Sony, which should be out in uh, September. And I am very very excited because it's. Uh, it's a lot of stuff that uh, I feel that I've uh, heard when I was growing up, and he's a great singer, so so I'm very excited about that. That, that should be out soon. Thank you so much for uh, allowing this time to talk My to you. pleasure. I know we have to wrap it up because you're very busy, but again, thank you, and all the best to uh, the concerts with the T.S.L. So. Thank you very much. appreciate it.
1: And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me. Coming up next week, the scoop on some sexy fashion photographs from a Zoomer fashion icon.
0: This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air.